The words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians in chapter 5, verses 8, 9, and 10. But perhaps we'd better read on to verse 14. For ye were sometimes darkness, but are now, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit, or the fruit of light, is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret." But all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light. For whatsoever doth make manifest is light. Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. Now we are working our way through this most important statement which the apostle makes here. He is appealing, as you see at once, for a conduct and behavior that is worthy of the gospel. He's already put it in the first part of the chapter in terms of love. He is now putting it in terms of light. And we have seen that he has a great contrast here. He reminds these Christians that they were once darkness, but they're now light in the Lord. And that, therefore, they are to manifest that in every respect in their daily life and living. And we have been looking at what he tells us about the characteristics of these two states and conditions, the characteristics of darkness and the characteristics of light. And we have seen that these characteristics show themselves in the entire personality. They show themselves in the intellect, in the heart, and in the will. The characteristic of darkness intellectually is ignorance. Its characteristic in the realm of emotions and feelings is a dullness and a deadness and a lack of response to the truth. And in the will we saw that it leads to the unfruitful works of darkness. But then on the other side, we have been looking a little at the manifestations of the light. And we've considered how light shows itself again, in the intellect, in the knowledge that the Christian alone has, and likewise in the heart, in his response, in his being moved by the truth. He not merely has a head knowledge, he is moved by it. He loves it, he desires it, he seeks it. And then we came on to the whole question of how all this manifests itself in the realm of the will. We began considering this last Sunday morning. And we saw that the first thing the Apostle tells us is that light, as it shows itself in the activity of the will, in other words, in conduct and behavior and general practice, is something that he describes as fruit. And we saw that that word was so full of meaning and of suggestion that we had to spend the whole of our Sunday morning with it. I just remind you of that, that this, all we're going to consider this morning, is something that comes from within outwards. It is an expression of 
the light that has irradiated and penetrated the whole of the being. You don't hang fruit onto a living tree. You do unto artificial trees, but not living trees. And so the fruit is something that comes out as an expression of the nature and the life of the tree. Well, now, having said that, we are in a position to consider what this fruit really is. What is this fruit of the light? You remember in verse 9, it's translated here in the authorized version as the fruit of the Spirit but we have agreed that it's better to translate it as the fruit of the light. Here then is something which will enable us to test ourselves and to know whether we are truly in the faith. The test we must apply is this. Are we bearing this fruit? It's no use boasting about our knowledge. It's no use boasting about our intellectual understanding and comprehension unless it leads to this fruit. A mere intellectual interest in the truth of God is of no value. The truth of God is to produce fruit. It's something that changes the life. As I've been at pains to emphasize, the apostle doesn't say that we have just received light. We have become light. The whole of our personality is involved. So in the same way we must say that it's no use boasting about feelings, no use boasting about experiences, unless they have led to this fruit of the light. Here is something that we can never emphasize too strongly. Christianity is a complete whole, and it changes the whole person. And if the whole person isn't engaged and involved, well then I say we have reason for the gravest concern. Knowledge is not enough. Feeling is not enough. Go back to 1 Corinthians 13, and there you will find the apostle working out this principle in extenso, as it were. Doesn't matter whether we speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love. It's no use. And though I may have all knowledge and understand all mysteries, and though I may have all faith so that I could remove mountains, and though I may even give my body to be burned, it's no use. It's of no value at all. If there is an absence of this charity, this love, one of these fruits of the light and of the spirit within the person. So now then we must test ourselves by these things. This is not a theoretical or academic discussion this morning. We are being examined by the truth. And the apostle says that in the case of everybody who is truly Christian, this light that has been put into them, that has shined into their hearts, the very center of their beings, is something that shows itself in certain ways. What are they? Well, he tells us here in this ninth verse, which he puts in brackets, he seems here to be holding a sort of prism under the light. And what the prism does, of course, is to divide up the light into its component parts. It breaks it up. That's what he's doing. It's a sort of spectrum that we're going to look at, the result of holding up the prism to the light. He puts that in this, in this form. The fruit of light is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Now, what does he mean by these things? 
he feels that they can't be taken for granted. That's why he puts them in, as I say here, in brackets. His real exhortation is, But now are ye light in the Lord, walk as children of light, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. But lest they might be forgetful of what are the characteristics of the light, I say he just divides it up for us here in passing in parentheses in the ninth verse. And he says that what you find is this, you find all goodness, all sorts and kinds and forms of goodness, all righteousness, and all forms and kinds and manifestations of truth. Now we must look at these three most important words. The first you notice is goodness. And then comes righteousness. This particular apostle clearly was very interested in those two words. He often puts them together. We are reminded at once of another place in which he puts them together, but puts them in a different order. I'm referring to the epistle to the Romans, chapter 5, and the seventh verse, where he is showing us how God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now he says that is truly amazing, it's astonishing, it's almost incredible, because you don't get that sort of thing amongst men. And then he puts it like this, For scarcely for a righteous man would one die, yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. You notice the difference between a righteous man and a good man. Scarcely for a righteous man would, would, would one die. Peradventure, he says, it's, well, it does just happen now and again that for a good man, some would even dare to die. There he takes the righteous men first and then goes on to the good men. But here he starts with the good men and then continues with the righteous men. And it's easy to see, I think, why the order of the two words is not the same in both cases. He is working up to something in Romans 5, but here he's starting from above downwards. So he starts with the word goodness. The fruit of light is in all goodness. What is goodness? Here is a word that we tend to use glibly and thoughtlessly and lightly. Because it's a very great word. Goodness is one of the characteristics of God himself. God is good to all. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. Or take it again as the Apostle defines it somewhat in the second chapter of his epistle to the Romans in verse 5. Where he says, Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. The goodness of God. God is good. Goodness is one of the characteristics of God. Well, what does it mean then? It means benevolence. Goodness is always indicative of a perfect balance in the various parts of the personality. 
A good man is a balanced man. A good man is a man in whom everything that is noble and excellent works together and is perfectly balanced. That is the great characteristic of a good man, a man who is characterized by goodness. You will always feel about him that he is not angular, but that the various attributes of his person and his personality are to be seen in this perfect blending. And the result of this is, of course, that he is a man who is concerned to promote the happiness of all around him. He's not selfish, he's not self-centered. But because he has this balance himself, he is concerned about others. And you see how that is the great characteristic of God. It is the goodness of God that leadeth us to repentance. It is God looking upon our misery, our unhappiness, and all that is true of us as the result of sin. It is that in God which leads us to repentance. He does it in this way. God is good to all. He causeth his Son to rise upon the evil and the good and sendeth his reign upon the just and the unjust. That's a part of the goodness of God. That though they are evil and unjust, he does this for them. The goodness of God leadeth to repentance. Well, now, in men, you see a very pale reflection of the same thing. A good man is a man who has thoughts of love. He is a man who thinks about love and beauty and truth. And therefore, as he looks out upon his fellow men and women, he is concerned, in turn, to alleviate suffering, to mitigate wrongs. He's always looking for opportunities to do this. His heart, I say, is one which is full of benevolence. He's concerned about benefiting others. Now, that comes inevitably when you're thinking of fruit, as we saw last Sunday. It's always something that is of benefit or of value. It's a complete contrast, you see, with the unfruitful works of darkness to which he refers, which is of no benefit or of value to anybody at all. The sinner is no benefactor. He's purely selfish. He's out to satisfy and gratify his own lusts and desires, his own passions. I want this, and because I want it, I must have it. He may cause intense suffering to others. doesn't count with him at all. That's the exact opposite of goodness and of benevolence. You see, the terrible thing about sin is it turns a man right in upon himself. He's self-centered, self-interested, selfish. But this man looks outwards, goodness. He's concerned about others and concerned about helping them and alleviating their suffering. Well now, says the apostle, the first thing that you see as you hold up this prism to the light is uh, that the man who is full of this light is a man who is full of this kind of good characteristic, this goodness, this thing that goes out uh, to others and is concerned about helping them and improving their lot. God is good to all. And the Christian, in turn, should be good to all. Christ says, I am the light of the world, and goes on to say, ye are the light of the world. That's it. As he was good to all, we must be good to all in the same way. Very well, there's our first term, but let us take a glance at the second term, righteousness. 
There is a difference between goodness and righteousness. What is the difference? The answer is that the term righteousness immediately brings in legal notions and conceptions. Righteousness means conforming to law. And it's the most important thing, this. You see, it's a smaller term than goodness. Goodness is vaster, it's wider. Righteousness is something that you think of in terms of the prescriptions and the demands of a law and conformity to that law. It means uprightness. It means just and being just and manifesting justice. It means, if you like, being right. You drop your plummet and you test the rightness, the uprightness of a post of a door or something like that uh, by the plummet. Well, that's the whole idea of righteousness. And uh, what the apostle is saying is that this righteousness is the characteristic of the Christian men. He is right and just and upright in and of himself. In his own handling of himself, what he does is upright and just. But he's also upright with respect to other people. In his conduct towards others. He is fair in his treatment of them. He never violates the rules or the laws. He never does anything that is wrong to them. And likewise with regard to their possessions. In other words, if you like, you can think of righteousness in terms of the Ten Commandments and what we are told about not coveting the things that belong to your neighbor. This man who has light in him is never guilty of coveting his neighbor's possessions and rights. No, as he's an upright man in and of himself, he is in all his dealings with others. Now, you're not thinking so much of benevolence at the moment as correctness. He always does that which is right and true and just, that which is indicated by God's moral law. In other words, he is uh, he's not a, a selfish man. Neither is he a man who is governed by prejudices. He isn't governed by his impulses and his thoughts. He wants to know what's right. What is just? What is equitable? What is really fair to that other man? He loves his neighbor as himself. That's it. It is a perfect conformity to the law, not to the letter, but also in the spirit. And the apostle says to these Ephesians now, he says, you are no longer what you used to be. You are sometimes darkness. And the main characteristic of your life then was lawlessness. It was every man for himself. And what a man did himself and what he did to others was unjust. He was harming himself, he was harming others. There was nothing equitable about his whole conduct. It was every man for himself and every man out for himself. And nobody caring about other people's rights, grabbing, taking to yourself. You see the application of all this in the life of society today. And most of the troubles and the problems which are confronting even the politicians are due to an absence of this righteousness. Not only is there no goodness, there is no righteousness. And these things, of course, always go together. 
I think I reminded you last Sunday morning how the Apostle puts it in the Epistle to the Romans once more in the first chapter, in verse 18, where he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness first and then unrighteousness of men. When you, get, when you lose godliness, you always lose righteousness. There is no greater fallacy than the fallacy that has characterized the moral teaching of the last hundred years or so, which has been this, that you could shed the godliness and hold on to the righteousness, that you could dismiss the Bible but still get the conduct that the Bible inculcates. It just can't happen. Once you lose godliness, you'll always lose righteousness. Well, now then, the apostle is reminding these people that conversely, that to come back to God, to have this light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ shining in our hearts leads not only to the goodness that characterizes God himself, but in turn leads to this kind of righteousness in character and in conduct and in behavior all round the circle and with respect to everything. In other words, this Christian man is a man, who, is a man whose life is governed by principles. He knows what he's doing, and he knows why he's doing them. He's not just conforming to a pattern. He has reasons. He's working out his doctrine. He is a righteous man because he knows that the law of the Lord is right. And it is true, converting the soul, as the, as the psalm puts it. Very well, there is our second term, but I come to the third term, which is truth. The fruit of the light is in all goodness and all righteousness and all truth. And this again is the most important and vital element. Why does he mean here by truth? I suggest to you that he means a series of contrasts with what he's been saying about the other life. And here are the contrasts. He says in verse 6, Let no man deceive you with vain words. Truth is the opposite of deceit. He says here, later on, that it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. He talks about the hidden works of darkness elsewhere. Well, now then, truth is the exact opposite of such things as that. The characteristic of the life of the Christian man is, therefore, that there is no deceit in it. Nothing hidden. Nothing underhanded. Nothing dishonest. Nothing that savors of hypocrisy or pretense. No, the characteristic of this is openness. Everything above board, as it were. Collusive, transparent. You can use any one of those terms. Indeed, as he points out, he says, uh, all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light. Uh, for what doth make manifest is light, whatsoever doth make manifest is light. That isn't uh, the best translation as I'm hoping to show you, but uh, there is that meaning to it. Uh, you can't conceal anything when light comes. Uh, 
think of the darkness, yourself walking along a dark country road and suddenly a car comes with the headlights on and everything becomes visible and you see all sorts of creeping things disappearing. Everything is made manifest by the light. Light exposes everything. Well now, that is the truth, you see. That is the effect of truth within the personality. The Christian man is an open man. He has nothing to conceal or to hide. He is not a man who is pretending to be something that he isn't. He is what he is. And he is what he is by the grace of God. Oh, he is an exact opposite to that other type of man whose whole life is lived in deceit. He doesn't trust anybody else and nobody trusts him. You can't believe him. You never know when he's speaking the truth. He's got to cover up his sins, you see. As uh, Adam and Eve had to after they sinned, they covered themselves with those fig leaves. Men's been doing that ever since, and they went and hid behind the trees of the garden to hide themselves from God that had come down upon them. And you see the deceit in Cain's life. That's always the characteristic of a life of sin. Hidden. Untrustworthy. Deceitful. But the Christian, he says, is the exact opposite of all this. There's a transparency about him. Well, you know your man, as it were. And he's all above board. He's not hiding anything. There's no pretense. He's sincere. Take those words that came out of that second chapter of the first epistle of Peter. Without malice, without hypocrisy, he says, without guile. That's exactly the same thing the Apostle Peter, in his way, is stating in that chapter the very things that the Apostle Paul is dealing with at this point in this fifth chapter of the epistle to the Ephesians. No, no, he says, there's no malice, there's no guile, nor hypocrisy, nor envy, nor evil speaking. It's truth. The man is what he is because of the truth of God. It's truth. And the truth has entered into him. It's possessed him. So his life is characterized by truth in all its varied and glorious manifestation. So we can sum up what the Apostle is saying about light in this way. Light is the most beneficent thing in the world. What a wonderful thing light is. And all the good that it does. Nobody likes a day like this. Nobody likes fog. But we glory in the light and the sunshine. Light heals our bodies. Wherever it is, it does good. It brightens everything. Works into the deepest parts, even on our physical constitutions. There is nothing that does more good in the world than light. Well, our Lord has told us, as I've reminded you, that we, in turn, are the light of the world. And we are to radiate this beneficence amongst our fellow men and women. And likewise, in the same way, light always exposes that which is wrong. Brings it into sight and condemns it as it were. And shows us what is right and true and good. And light is that which makes everything open and plain and clear. 
I want some light on this passage, says the man. He's studying a portion of scripture and he doesn't quite get it. Something hidden, he can't. I'd like some light on this, he says. That's it. It opens it out. Makes everything plain and clear and pellucid. And you and I, according to the apostle, as according to the whole of the teaching of the New Testament everywhere, are to be men and women who are characterized by those qualities. When we visit people, they should say when we leave, it was good for us that they came. It was a good thing that they came. We are feeling better for their presence. And in the same way, by being what we are, we should be a rebuke to evil. We'll have to work this out again more in detail, as he tells us to. And we should be manifestations of the just and the true, and the holy and the upright life. And above all, I say, we should bring this element of openness and of truth into all our dealings and all our associations. Well, now, there are the three things that he puts in brackets, but as I've reminded you, he goes on to put another thing in verse 10. But now, he says, are ye light in the Lord? Walk as children of light, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. And this, of course, is in many ways the key to it all. And something that covers the three things about which I have already been speaking. Here, I say, is the kind of overriding principle, which, if we observe it, will guarantee the three manifestations of the light within us. Proving, he says, what is acceptable unto the Lord. What does he mean by this? Well, let us take a parallel statement by him again in the epistle to the Romans, chapter 12 this time, and the second verse. Be not conformed, he says, to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your minds that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Prove. Same thing again. We are proving what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. What does he mean by proving this? The, the term the apostle used really answers the question. It's an interesting term. It's the term that is implied and was implied then in the testing of precious metals. When you wanted to differentiate between one metal and another. You were given a lump of material, and the question was, well, well, what is this? Is it gold, silver, what is it? How did you test? Well, you tested it by applying various acids, and you observed the response. Now, you were proving that metal. That's what you were doing. You were proving it. You were testing it. You were discovering what exactly it was by applying the tests. That's the word the apostle used. Proving what is acceptable unto the law. In other words, the great characteristic of the life and the conduct and the behavior of the Christian is that the whole of his time he is discovering what it is that really pleases the Lord. That's what he wants to do. That is his grand ultimate motive. And here is something, therefore, which we must emphasize in a very special manner for this reason. 
I was indicating last Sunday morning that it is important for us in looking at the conduct and behavior of the Christian not only to differentiate between him and the flagrant, obvious sinner, but also to differentiate between him and the so-called good moral man, the good pagan, if you like. Now, here is the ultimate acid test. The apostle, if you like, is saying this to us. Do you see those two men, he says? Now, as you look at their lives, you really can't see much difference between them. They both seem to be good men. They both seem to be righteous men. They both seem to be men who are characterized by truth. And yet one of those men is a Christian and the other isn't. We've all come across this difficulty, haven't we? Is that man really a Christian or isn't he? How do you tell? Well, I know of no better test than this very test that we've got in this tenth verse. Here is something that is true only of the Christian, never of anybody else. This is the characteristic of the Christian, that he is always proving what is acceptable unto the law. Now then, I mean by that something like this. That here is a man who is not concerned about and interested in goodness, righteousness, and truth in and of themselves. He's not interested in them as abstract virtues. He's not interested in them as abstract absolutes to govern his conduct. Now, there are people who are interested in these things in and of themselves. I am a man, says this man, I believe in goodness. I believe in righteousness and justice. I believe in truth and in truthfulness. He sets that up as his code, and he lives according to his code. All right, let's grant him everything that he claims. He may succeed very well. But all I'm saying is this, that if that is all he tells me, I tell him that he's not a Christian. That is morality. That may be just excellent paganism. That is the teaching of the great Greek philosophers before Christ. They inculcated these principles. Yes, but they were only principles. Now, the Christian is not interested in them as abstract principles. He is interested in them because he knows it is the will of the Lord. It's the Lord that interests him. And because the Lord is characterized by these and is anxious that his people should be, this man is interested in them. He goes further. He adds this differentiating truth. Or let me put it like this. The Christian, unlike the good moral men or the good religious men, who is not a Christian, is not living this kind of life in order to please himself or to live up to his own standard or his own code. Now, there are many men who do that. It's no part of my business to criticize them, but it is very much my business to show that they're not Christians. This is one of the most subtle points we can ever encounter. There are men who say, well now, I believe in having a standard. I believe in having a code. And I'm going to do my utmost to live up to that code. And I'm going to be unhappy unless I do that. Why is the man doing this? Well, he's doing it to please himself. 
He's doing it to live up to his own standard. He says, a man's got to live with himself. He says, I'd lose my self-respect if I didn't do this. I'd be ashamed of myself if I didn't. I'm not content to live anyhow summer. I believe in living up to that mark and to that standard. But the whole time, his motive is to please himself and to keep up to and to conform to his own standard and his own code. That's not the Christian. Proving, proving always what is acceptable unto the Lord. Or let me go further. This man is a man who lives this life not because he is interested in or governed by the opinions of others. There are many people who are living what we commonly call a good life for one reason only. They're afraid of what people will say if they don't do it. They're afraid they'll be found out. They're afraid they'll be condemned. They're afraid that people won't think, think so highly of them as they, as they used to think. They're afraid that there'll be publicity against them. And that governs the whole of their life. They're governed in all their conduct by what other people are going to think or say or do about them. That isn't the Christian. The apostle says in writing to the Corinthians in his first epistle, Chapter 4, I think it's verse 4. With me, he says, it is a very small thing that I be judged of you or of any man's judgment. Yea, he says, I judge not mine own self. That's Christianity. He's not governed by what other people are going to say. He's not even governed by what he's going to say about himself. I judge not mine own self. It's a very small thing. It's a trivial thing to me that I be judged of you or of any man's judgment. Say what you like, says Paul. It makes no difference to me. I have committed my judgment, he goes on, to the Lord. That's the Christian proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. But I want to take this even one step further. The men, the Christian men whose life is characterized by goodness and righteousness and truth is not even a man who is trying to live a life in conformity with and according to the teaching even of the Lord Jesus Christ himself because he thinks that that is the highest and the best. Now, again, I say that there are many people who do that. They read the ethics of the Greek philosophers and everybody else. And then they come to the Sermon on the Mount. And they say, here is the acme. Here it is, at its highest and its finest. There's never been such ethical teaching as this. Very well, says the man. I'm going to live my life according to the dictates and the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, the highest and noblest concept I've ever encountered. Is he a Christian? Well, all I say is this, that if he stops at that, he is not a Christian. Because the Christian is a man who is governed by this, proving what is that good and perfect and acceptable will of the Lord. No, no, we must be absolutely clear about this. The thing that proves that we are Christians is that over and above every other consideration, our ultimate, our final consideration is 
our desire to seek and to know, to discover the will of the Lord in order that we may please him. It's that. It's this personal relationship to this blessed person. This, as I've been saying, is the differentia of Christian ethics that puts it into a category entirely alone. Its motive, its mainspring, the most important thing about it is this, that nobody else can claim or even speaks about. The desire to live to his glory and to his praise and to please him in all things. Even as this apostle puts it, even as I please not myself, it was always to the Lord and for the Lord. Why? Well, I needn't detain you. This must be true. A Christian is a man who realizes that he owes everything that he is and has and hopes to be to this Lord. To the one who so loved him that while he was yet in darkness, while he was yet a sinner, while he was yet ungodly, while he was yet an enemy, so loved him that he gave himself for him. His body was broken. His blood was shed. Why? That he might become light in the Lord. He is a man who says to himself, I am not mine own. I have been bought with a price. He is not a free agent. He is with the Apostle Paul. He is the bond slave of the Lord Jesus Christ who has died that he might be forgiven. Who has died that he might be made good. Who has died that he might have a hope of entering into heaven. It's the Lord, this one who's given him everything. He's the motive. It's to please him proving what is the acceptable will of the Lord. This man's motive is not to keep up to a certain code of morality. It's not to avoid the criticism of others. It's not to be on good terms with himself. It's not to be a paragon of all the virtues. It's not to cut a great figure or have a great name amongst men. No, no. He says, let nothing please nor pain me apart, O Lord, from thee. Proving what is the acceptable will of the Lord. Yes, the apostle puts it again in writing to the Corinthians, whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. That's in 1 Corinthians 10. Read it for yourselves. Conscience, he says, not thine own, but of the other also. All things are lawful, but all things are not expedient. What's he mean? Well, there's that weaker brother. Why should I consider him? Well, because Christ has considered me. Whatsoever he do, he therefore works it up to a great climax at the end. Whether he eat or drink or whatsoever he do, do all to the glory of God. It's only the Christian who does that. Oh, may I close by putting it to you like this. Isaac Watts, it seems to me, has said it all for us very perfectly when he puts it like this. Love, so amazing, so divine, demands. That's it. The demand of his love, the constraint of his love upon me, demands. 
my soul, my life, my all. Oh yes, the Christian is a man who is not interested in abstract virtues, even though they be goodness, righteousness and truth. He is interested in them only because he is interested in the Lord. Christ died that we might be the lights of the world, that we might be good, that we might be reflections of him, that we might be like cities set upon a hill which cannot be hid, the light which is not put under a bushel but put in a prominent place that it irradiates its light throughout the entire room. Let your light, he says, so shine that men may behold your good works but glorify your Father which is in heaven. Yes, says the first answer to the first question in the Shorter Catechism. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him as you're doing so, forever. Proving what is the acceptable will of the Lord. Amen.